Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Beth Malden, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we're talking to Dr. Jonathan Smith, who is an honorary research fellow at the University of London. He'll be discussing his latest book, Robespierre and the Festival of the Supreme Being, The Search for a Republican Morality. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Beth. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this topic? I wanted to do history when I was at school, but I finished up being an engineer. And uh, anyway, I spent a, a long and happy life being an engineer. And then when I retired, when I was 65, I decided that I would do something I wanted to do. And so I joined a wonderful organization in England called the Open University, which is long distance learning. And I did a a bachelor's degree in, not specifically in history, but in general uh, subjects of that area, finishing up with a final dissertation on the 20th century, particularly the cultural effect of the post-World War II films and art scene. So how did you become interested in this topic, going from 20th century film to the French Revolution? I was in a train in France, as one is, and I was well, I was about to get on a train in France to travel quite a long way, and I went into the bookshop, and there was a paperback by a historian called Mona Ozuf, whom I'd never met, never even heard of, which was about the festivals of the revolution. And I read it, and it absolutely fascinated me. And then... I started reading also more about the French Revolution and particularly more about Maximilien Robespierre. And the two sort of came together. But when I finished my bachelor's degree, I decided to do a master's degree, a general master's degree in cultural history. And the tutor I had was a very, very, very good uh, teacher indeed. His name was Alan Clinton. He's now unfortunately dead. Uh, he wrote the, absolutely the book on Jean Moulin. Unfortunately, Alan couldn't continue with me, and he introduced me to a friend of his, Pamela Pilbeam, who was professor of French history at one of the colleges of the University of London, Royal Holloway. She read my proposal on the importance, the cultural importance of the festivals of the revolution, and specifically the great festival of 1794, the festival of the supreme being, and Robespierre's part in it. And she said to me, why are you wasting your time doing a master's degree? And I said, I beg your pardon. And she said, I think you ought to do a PhD. So I did. So I had four and a half glorious years doing absolutely what I wanted to do, which is living with the archives and living to the 
ultimate, as it were, with my subject. And the result was a thesis, which is now a book. So now let's jump into your book. The, the Cult of the Supreme Being is Robespierre's response to the de-Christianization of France in the early days of the revolution. And before we talk about de-Christianization, could you first discuss the importance of the church in the everyday lives of French citizens at this time? Yes, it is one of my pet subjects that, uh, in fact, the importance of religion is often misunderstood or ignored by students of the revolution. If you talk to a lot of uh, pardon the expression, young people, I can say that because I'm 85, um, who are coming to the revolution, as it were, fresh. Most of them don't know anything about it. And what they do know about it is sometimes based on things like Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities or something like that. And if you read that sort of literature, it appears that in 1789, somebody rang a gong and the church disappeared. Well, it didn't. The church was enormously important in France, not because of it being a church only, but because it was also the only, shall we say, register system of the nation. Births, marriages, and deaths were recorded by priests, by the local priests. There was no city hall that did it. That came much later in the revolution with the invention of citizenship in 1792 and 1793. So the church was responsible for recording everybody's life in a certain sense. If you were ill, there was no health service. There were no hospitals as such. There were doctors. But if you were ill, you went to a hospital or whatever, and almost without exception, they were religious establishments where the medical staff would indeed be doctors, some of whom might be priests, but the nursing staff would almost exclusively, if not totally exclusively, be religious ladies, nuns. The other thing that the church did before the revolution was it was the, it was the national calendar. Of course, they had a calendar. Everybody had a calendar. and they. But the thing about the calendar was that it was largely based on saints' days. And saints' days were terribly important because you knew that with the beginning of Lent, you would start preparing the fields. By Easter, you had to have the sowing done. Up comes Whitson. You start thinking about your apples and pear trees and so on. Harvest coincides with one of the great feasts of summer, usually the Feast of the Assumption in August. And then in September, to finish the year off, the Feast of St. Michael is the great day on which everybody, and it was not only France, it was throughout Europe, had fairs or great gatherings where not only would they sell produce, but they would do contracts with people from the towns for next year. How much, you know, how much corn are we going to sell? How much are you going to buy? Are you going to pay for it now? And all the rest of it. And the other thing, of course, was that it was also the day or the period in which the laborers did a deal for the next year. So the farmers would be there looking for workers and the specialist workers would be there 
looking for farmers, whether they were harvesters or roofers or coopers or whatever. So the church was a sort of city hall, in fact, apart from it being a religious organization. And France was a very religious country. So in 1789, the revolutionaries began dismantling the power of the Catholic Church. So could you talk a little bit about the, the that process of dechristianization? For example, what laws were passed, what restrictions were placed on the clergy? Yes. Um, the word, I think um, we have to be a little bit careful here. The word dechristianization doesn't really come into it until 1792. What happened in 1789 and 1790 was the reorganization of the church by the political power, which was the National Assembly. In June 1789, everybody agreed, whether they were the extreme, shall we say, Republican elements of the revolution, or whether they were even the monarchists, like Lafayette, that the church had to be sorted out. They were too big, too powerful, much too powerful. They owned far too much of the land. They never paid any taxes, and they were generally a drain. You must remember that one of the reasons behind the revolution, why the king called for the Estates General to be summoned in 1788, was because France was broke, literally broke. It had no money. The church had plenty of money, lots and lots of money. So, when the time came to decide what they're going to do with the church, even people who had religious feelings, shall we say, even people who practiced their religion were prepared to get rid of the power of the church, especially the economic power of the church. What they did was in, a, in, a, in a, a, an amazing 16-hour period, the National Assembly went absolutely mad. They removed everything, and I mean everything. They took away the power of the church. They took away the functions of the church. They took away everything they could think of. They decided that priests who didn't want to be priests just stop, go off. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to go through Rome to ask the Pope for permission. You just do it. If a nun wants to get married, she can get married. Everybody can do whatever they like. But the main thing is they were removing the economic powerhouse, which was the Catholic Church. So this continued then. And the next stage was that when the nation needed a lot of money, and it did, the obvious place to find it was the church. So uh, everything that belonged to the church, right down to the churches themselves, the chapels, whatever, got, as it were, nationalized and became available to the nation, and most of it was sold for ready money. Then, of course, they realized that, or many of them realized, that they had done something which, while in essentially good, that is to say, break the economic stranglehold the church had on, on the country, they'd also probably gone a little too far. And they set a, set a commission up, to reorganize the church so that there would be a church and there would be worship. And the result was what is called the Constitutional Church. The Constitutional Church, unlike the Catholic Church as such, was to be 
responsible to the state. It answered to the state, the people would be appointed. When when they got rid of the church, they suddenly discovered also they had another problem. They had a lot of priests, bishops and whatever, and a lot of people in hospitals and homes for old soldiers, all that sort of thing, veterans establishments, who suddenly hadn't got any money. So they had to be paid by somebody and financed by somebody. And they were, and they passed laws and said, right, it's very simple. We, the state, will finance you. There was a long, long argument. It was actually one of Robespierre's, since I, I have to, in the end, come back to Robespierre. It was one of Robespierre's first major speeches when he was arguing about how much the clergy should be paid. In the end, they got a very good deal. They were paid a lot of money relative to what they'd been earning. The problem was that they had lost all their power, and even worse, they'd lost all their position as regards to everybody. The Catholic Church now sort of existed, but didn't quite, because priests were required to swear an oath. And this is the the point at which it all becomes very awkward. Priests were required to swear an oath, basically, that their first answer for anything would be the state. Now, uh, if you are a Catholic, you will understand that someone who has spent their life being responsible to Rome, eventually, through the bishop or whatever, suddenly has to say, no, I'm not going to do what the Pope says. I'm going to do what the politicians say. And this, of course, was absolutely something that a lot of people couldn't look at. They went to the king and said, look, we need to do this constitutional church. We need to set up something because what we've done is we've created a vacuum. You can't have a vacuum. Vacuums don't work. It'll fill itself if we don't fill it. We need a constitutional church logical. The king didn't know what to do. He really didn't. He had, shall we say, two sets of advisors, one of whom was saying, you can't do this. This is taking away your sacred rights. This is taking away the rights of the uh, of Rome. This is taking making the church a political object. You can't do it. The others were saying, this is the only thing that's going to keep the church alive. We've got to form some sort of compromise. But he did compromise because, unfortunately, the Pope at the time was getting very, very bad advice from people who knew nothing about what was going on on the ground, as it were, in France and were advising him, no, 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 you mustn't give an inch, you mustn't do anything. And in the end, he decided, he came down on that side and he published a papal bull which said basically to the priests who still existed, you may not sign this oath. This is what created the split between what are called the jurors, those who swore, and the non-jurors, those who didn't. And unfortunately, there were an awful lot more of people who wouldn't swear the oath than did. This affected everybody. It affected people living everywhere in France because let's say you're living in a small town, you're living happily, you've been going to church on maybe not every Sunday, but certainly on the big feasts like Easter and Whitson and things like that. And all of a sudden, a gang of Republicans turn up, open the church doors, take all the vestments, take all the beautiful plate and ornaments away and try and take the priest away as well. And a lot of people in France didn't think that was a very good idea. They were very happy to have the church brought down to a reasonable level. 
they were not happy to have it removed. So we've now got a situation where you have a highly revolutionary government in Paris saying this is what you will do, and an awful lot of people outside Paris in the provinces saying, well, I don't actually want to do that. Can't we have a compromise somewhere? Can't we keep uh, Father John? Father John's been here for years. He's a good man. Why are, you why are you chucking him out? Why are you threatening to kill him? It was a problem which was to continue for a long time. So that is the background up to the moment, as it were, when the politicians really had to decide absolutely one way or another what were they going to do about the church. And that was then, by that, that time, everything was in a bit of a mess. And it was, we're back to, we're on to 1791, 1792 by now. And, and that brings me to my next question. Instead of trying to find some kind of compromise, it seems like they push the most radical possibility with this cult of reason. And you have revolutionary leaders like Hébert and Chomet and Fauché establishing this cult of reason in uh, 1792, I believe. And, and they organized a festival of reason in Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris in 1793. What were the basic tenets of this cult of reason and why was it so destructive? Well, the cult of reason actually was an oddity. One of the things that happened in the 1792-93 part of the revolution was in order for the politicians in Paris to know what was going on in the country and to try and control what was going on in the country, they invented a thing called representatives in mission. Those were members of the assembly, or the convention as it was by then, who were sent out to the provinces in the name of the ruling body, the convention, to make sure that the decrees which were decided in Paris were actually followed. They were, like all the members of the convention, they were a very mixed bunch. Some of them, you mentioned Fouché, for example. Le Bar was another typical one. Le Quigno was another typical one. Carrier were all, funnily enough, ex-churchmen. They'd all been members either of a religious or a priestly order, but they'd given it up. And like many people, when the revolution comes, the swing, shall we say, was absolutely from absolute right to absolute left. They became the active de-Christianizers. When they went out, they made certain that in the places they went to the churches were locked, everything was taken away, the priests and the nuns were either mocked or put into prison, or in many cases killed. So we've got a situation where Paris is, is, is imposing its will. And uh, you are a student of French history, and you must know that one of the things that the French have never taken quietly is having Paris impose its will on them. They still don't. It's, it's, it, uh, I, I have a large French family, which, is a, which I acquired by my French wife, and they are very individualistic, and they do not like being told what to think and what to do. So the net result was that in some places, de-Christianization was absolute, in some places it wasn't. Most of the time, it was left largely to what the people who were in charge. For example, if you went to the Nièvre, where Fouché was the representative in mission, there was no church. If you went to the south or to the east, where slightly milder people were in charge, they came to a sort of modus vivendi. 
They the lot of priests were still there doing their functions. People still wanted to get married. They didn't all want to get married in a Republican ceremony. They didn't want their babies christened in a Republican ceremony. They wanted the old ways, a lot of them. And these people were there. And yeah, I, I think I think I ought to say at this point, I am one of many historians of the revolution. And I can think of at least 10 of my distinguished colleagues in the United States who will by now be leaping up and down shouting, it's John, it's wrong. <laughs> well, that's the nature of academia, right? Which is the nature of academia. It's also the nature, the revolution tends to get revolutionaries. <laughs> uh, we all tend to get a little revolutionary. Um, anyway, so you were asking me about the cult of reason. Well, in fact, the cult of reason was... An oddity. How can I explain the cult of reason? It was entirely really the idea of one man, Chomet, who was the head of the government at the time. Now, Chomet was a very keen dechristianizer. One of the things I point out in my book, as I'm sure you've noticed, is the way that right through from 1790 almost, right through up to his death, Robespierre was saying, look, you know, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You've got to have some form of moral suasion. Whether it's the religious one or a republic one doesn't matter. It's got to be there. Now, you mentioned uh, some of the other fairly distinguished dechristianizers. They were very, very, very uh, extreme. They had their followers, but they also created a lot of problems. The whole Père Duchesne business was extremist. One of the things it is difficult to understand about the French Revolution, when we look at it, we who are used to normal politics, is there wasn't any politics. There were no parties. People didn't specifically follow a leader. You had the, the mountain and the plain and the soggy bit in the middle. But nobody belonged to anybody, not in the way that you and I are used to politicians having a label on them, Democrat, Republican, Conservative, Labour Party, whatever. None of that happened. And and, and people's, uh, how shall I put this simply, people's feelings changed a lot, depending on who was talking and how good they were. Someone like Danton, who was not an avid de-Christianizer, could, because he was a great orator, almost pick the entire convention up and wave it around in the air and put it back down again. And they would all vote what he said, because he was a truly great orator. Robespierre was not a great orator. He had a thin, if the comments we hear are to be believed, he had a thin, probably a slightly squeaky voice. He also had a fairly strong provincial accent, and he depended on not on the, 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 the art of oratory, as Zantan did, or uh, as later Saint-Just did, but he depended on the logic of his, of his thing. He was trying to make people follow him because it was logical to do so. So we have a convention where you have people moving about all the time between political positions. The one thing they were all absolutely agreed on is there is no way that the church was coming back because apart from anything else, the church has now had now got itself totally and completely hooked, the old church, hooked with those people who wanted to destroy 
what was now the Republic. In other words, the invaders coming from the north and the south and the west. We had the Austrians, Austrians and Italians coming from the south. We have the Brits coming in from the other side. They were all for the king and unfortunately also part of the banner, as it were, was king and religion. So that was not a very favorable thing. The problem was that there was no organization. The church was not behaving uh, perhaps as softly as everybody had hoped. It hadn't gone away. It most certainly hadn't gone away. It was still very strong in lots of places. And in lots of places, it must be said that although the church was strong, it was not opposed to the, the ethos of the revolution. What it was opposed to was the things that the revolution was actually doing to it, like killing people or burning churches or whatever. That they didn't like. So Chomet decided that he would have... Now, the, the festival... Here's is where we come to the festivals. The festival started in 1790 with a great festival called the Feast of the Federation, Festival of the Federation, which was on the, held on the Champ de Mars in the in the presence of the king, on which mass was said by a Roman Catholic bishop. His name was Talleyrand, and he had not said mass for years. He had to actually go and get some instruction as to how to do it before he did it, although he was a bishop. Anyway, the king was there, and the standards of the National Guard were formally blessed by the church. So that shows you the church was still part of life. Then another one was held in 1791, a little less in 1792. And in 1793, they decided to join up the national... By the way, by now, the national celebrations had coalesced around one day. And that day, naturally enough, is the 14th of July. So, in 1793, they decided to write a new constitution. One of the interesting things about the constitution that they wrote in 1793 was that it reached back to the Droits de l'Homme, the first paragraph of the Déclaration des Droits de l'Homme states that it was written under the surveillance of the supreme being. That surprises a lot of people. Remember, the Déclaration des Droits de l'Homme also guarantees the freedom of worship, which was a bit difficult when you've got the de-Christianizers on, on your tail. So, anyway, so in 1793, they have a, a, a big celebration in Paris not nationally, but in Paris, and uh, everybody has to send two representatives, every département had to send two representatives to march through Paris and swear allegiance to the new constitution. This looked okay, but it didn't satisfy, shall we say, the the hardliners who were now very much in control with Chomet in charge of the government. And he decided that he would have a celebration, which he called the Festival of Reason, Fête de la Raison. It was a small business to start with. It was only going to happen in Paris. It was not going to be national. It was going to be a sort of ceremony at which the convention said, this is what we are. We believe in reason. Everything else is out the window. We, you know... We're going to show everybody what it's all about. Coming up to the celebrations, they decided also, although Chomet did, that one of the things he would do nationally was he sent out an order saying that all churches had to be renamed Temple of Reason, 
which was fine. Most people didn't care. You can call a temple or a church what you like. It doesn't very much matter to a lot of people. So that went down quite well. Then it was decided that the Festival of Reason would be national. It was decided at the last minute. There was very little preparation, completely different from the festival which followed in 1794 when there was enormous preparation everywhere. All of a sudden, letters went out from Paris saying, you will have a festival of reason. We're going to have our festival of reason on this day. You should have one as soon as you can. And as you can see, that is a bit disorganized. Anyway, the festival of reason in Paris was not a great success in lots of ways. Some ways it was. For the extremists, it probably was. The festival was held inside Notre Dame, where a mountain was small small mountain was built on which was a temple dedicated to wisdom in which was a lady who represented wisdom as an actress famous actress and speeches were made and songs were sung and that was to be that unfortunately it degenerated by what we know about it which is not an awful lot but we do know from contemporary sources, that it degenerated into scenes of drunkenness, scenes of, shall we say, very bad behavior. According to one of the Paris papers, the lady who was representing truth decided to show herself in the way the classic Greeks always showed truth, that is to say, without any clothes on. And people like Robespierre, who were quite prepared to live with a sensible reasonable thing like this as part of the structure of thought towards a Republican morality didn't think much of this at all. In fact, they were very much against it. And the Festival of Reason fell absolutely flat. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. It didn't unite the nation. It didn't finally, once and for all, get rid of the problem of, shall we say, faith through the nation. So that brings me to my next question. So Robespierre, as you write in your book, was personally disgusted by Chomet's Festival of Reason, and he eventually became openly critical of Chomet and the activities of the, the de-Christianizers. He dismissed atheism as aristocratic, and so therefore atheism was counter-revolutionary. He said that a belief in a higher power is what is truly Republican. And Robespierre felt that it was necessary to establish some type of moral code. And at the same time, he had to be very politically savvy about it. So what dangers or dilemmas did he face when he was developing or coming up with this new national morality? Well, this wasn't a sudden, as you will see from my book, this wasn't a sudden blinding light to Robespierre, he didn't suddenly say, oh, this is all terrible, we've got to do something quickly. He'd been working at this for some time. He had got into a lot of trouble uh, many years earlier when somebody said about one of the um, Austrian archdukes, somebody might assassinate him, and he said that would be a stroke of fortune, and he got thumped in the assembly and most particularly in the Jacobin club for bringing in good fortune. Good fortune, that's that's religion. We don't have good fortune. We are the revolution. We don't do fortune. We do things. We make things happen. So he had to balance the fact that he had a political unit called the convention, which was liable to go anywhere at any time. As I say, there were no 
There was no discipline in it. There were no parties or anything like that. With his knowledge of the fact that large amounts of France were not very happy with reason and de-Christianizing. How did he know this? Well, he knew this by two, by two, in two ways. First of all, we must never forget that Robespierre was a very, very clever man. One of the things he did early on was to get the job of secretary of what became the Jacobin clubs. The Jacobin did not at that time have a political connotation. It was called Jacobin because they met in the old St. James's building which is still there in Paris, by the way. And that's why they're called Jacobin. Those who met, there were people who met with another in the buildings from belonging to another religious unit who were called the Cordelier and so on. So they, they took their names basically from where they had their meetings. He became secretary, which meant he wrote to everybody and everybody wrote to him. Now, just imagine you're in a revolutionary situation and you are getting feedback from all over the nation. Feedback which is coming individually to the politicians from their from the people who voted for them, but they're not talking to each other about it. You got this, and he very carefully kept this sort of thing, and he he had lots and lots of links to people. Lots of people respected him. He was by now being called the incorruptible, and he had a reputation, and he kept it. Oh, if he said yes, it was yes, and if he said no, it was no, which was more than some of his colleagues could say. So he also got a lot of feedback from all sorts of places. One of the people who was feeding him information was his brother, his younger brother, who was a representative in mission to the south of France. And he was sending stuff back to his brother, is one of his most famous letters to his brothers, which says, you have absolutely no idea of the mess which is going on here. People are unhappy. They don't believe Paris. They're, nobody listens to them. He's getting this feedback. So he realizes he's got, he, he has an underlying strength somewhere. On the other hand, being a, a politician and a very clever one, he also knows that as far as a large part of the revolutionary thought of the nation is concerned, the word church means monarchy, means opposition, means no thank you. So how do you go about it? Well, you go about it, or he goes about it, by continuing his own path. Now, we're in 1794 now. In February of 1794, Robespierre makes a speech which everybody knows, which everybody hates, in which he unleashes the terror. And he he makes it a logical thing. What is terror? Why do we have terror? We all know the phrases he uses. Terror is justice. Terror is prompt and absolute and swift and merciless justice. It wasn't, of course, because that is an uh, an idea of terror which is shall we say, a thought idea, but not a practical idea. You put it in the hands of people and it changes. Anyway, so he's, he's got the terror and he's beginning to realize that the nation needs something to hold it together. And what he thinks it needs to hold it together, and this is my, or this is my personal take on the matter, as it were, is that it needs somehow 
to replace the old system of morality without replacing all the things around it. In other words, we need a, a moral system without a church. And that seems to be what has brought him to the speech which he made in May 1794, which absolutely astounded everybody. Nobody had ever heard him speak anything like this before. Nobody had any idea, as far as we can gather, that it was coming. He didn't discuss it with anybody. It just appeared. You're referring to his speech on the 18th of Floreau, which was his speech on religious and moral ideas and Republican principles. Why was this speech so shocking? What did he proclaim? Well, let's imagine you're, uh, you and I are members of the convention, and we're sitting there and we're getting our bits of paper which say what's going to happen in the next few days. And it says a report by citizen Robespierre on the moral state of the nation. And we think, oh, here we go. Max is going to stand up and go and bang on about his favorite subject, which is morality, virtue. The word virtue comes through his lips more than almost any other word during his speeches. Virtue, virtue, virtue. So what we think is we're going to hear Robespierre stand up and give us another speech about virtue. He starts quite reasonably by saying, We've got halfway with the revolution, brothers. We've got to do the other half. Now, nobody's going to argue with that. That's a good opening. Everybody's happy. Then all of a sudden, he starts producing words that don't that nobody expects. Supreme being, force of nature, morality. And everybody's saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. What is this? It is a wonderful speech from the point of view of, from one point of view of how to, shall we say, without telling anybody what you're going to do, bring them to a feeling towards the end, as it obviously did, of they've heard something really important, really interesting. It's very difficult for us looking at the transactions, as it were, of the convention as we read them, with everybody going cheering here and there. I mean, they cheered anyway. Certain phrases, shall we say, um, automatically got a, a cheer. But at the end of this speech, he, I think he's really shaken them. He said, what we're going to do, what we need is we need a supreme being looking after us. Well, he's there, the supreme being. He's been looking after us all the time, and we didn't realize it. He sticks a lump in the speech, talking about the emperor, talking about Pitt and the filthy British, talking about the enemies of the revolution. All this is good stuff, but it's just in the middle, and it's not the main thrust of it. The main thrust of it is, here it is, this supreme being, we, perhaps we didn't realize it. He's been looking down on us. He's helping us. We ought to help him. We believe in him. There is a supreme being. There is a morality. And to prove it, we're going to have the biggest festival you've ever seen on the subject of the supreme being and morality. And that's really the way he, I mean, it must have been an absolute jaw dropper for anybody sitting in the convention. Why do you think he, he chose this idea of a supreme being? You said earlier that a supreme being was alluded to in the Declaration of the Rights of Man, but what was the philosophical basis for this new national morality? Well, um, one of the things I tried to do in my book is to trace the development of this thought by Robespierre from 1790, basically, through to 1794 by quoting from his speeches. And some of them are quite clear. 
on one occasion, he was in the Jacobin Club, and this is the one where, which you've already mentioned, when he said that atheism was an anti-Republican concept. It was the concept of the rich and powerful. And he comes up with these wonderful words, I have been a not very good Catholic since my youth. What I have never been is opposed to people. He believes in people. He believes in the goodness of people, which is a surprising thing from someone whose reputation is, to say the least, a great destroyer, a great cutter off of heads. But he believes in people. And he says, this is it. This is, this is what we need to do. And all of a sudden, he seems to have got them moving with him. You see what I'm aiming at, but see where I'm going. This is my thought. I accept, I accept totally that there are a lot of people, very much more important historians than I, people, I was going to say, whose shoes I'm not worthy to undo, who think I'm totally mad. Well, not totally mad, but they think I'm a bit off the scale. Some of them are the nicest people I know, and they say it to me very politely. Some don't. But then, as you said earlier, that's academe. So... Here we are, we've got this, he's decided he's going to have a festival. And he does something else, which is not just unusual, it's unheard of, it's amazing, and nobody's ever done it before. He says, the festival shall take place everywhere in France, on the same day, and at the same time, and as far as possible, using the same words. That had never been tried before. But that brings me to my next question about um, Jacques-Louis David. And, and most of us know him as the famous painter who painted the coronation of Napoleon, the death of Marat. But he also oversaw many of these revolutionary festivals that had been initiated in 1791. Yep. And so he created what was essentially a template for the festival of the Supreme Being for both Paris and the provinces. And what was his vision for the festival? Why was it so different? There's a very, very good book about Jacques-Louis David, not as a painter, not as a painter at all, by a man called Dowd, an American. It's been reprinted, thank goodness. And the title of the book is Jacques-Louis David, Pageant Master to the Republic. Now, that partially answers your question. He was, remember, he's a committed Republican, absolutely committed. He is a personal friend of Robespierre. He is a follower of Robespierre, a great one. He, he rather tends to duck out after Thermidor, manages to not get his head cut off, but never mind. He is very much pro-everything there. Now, what he's been doing is he's been running the festivals in the sense that he's been building the what you and I might call the attractions. Do you know what I mean by this? The, the booths, the shows, the things that people are going to come and see. In the 93 one, he built an Arc de Triomphe, as it were. He built a basin in which uh, everybody washed their hands before they swore the oath, and a triumphal arch under which they marched, all these sort of things. He built for uh, the festival where they had a festival to celebrate the retaking of Toulon from the British. He built a small battlefield. He built, in other words, stage sets. This isn't a painter. He's also a great designer. And Robespierre had obviously gone to him and said, 
look, this is what we need. This is what I need. This is what I want to do. How do I do it? There is one of the most annoying things, perhaps annoying is a silly word, but never mind, about the festival of the supreme being is I cannot find, and nobody has found yet, any piece of paper anywhere saying that anybody had any meetings about it before it before the final complete design was produced to the convention at the end of Robespierre's speech. There must have been meetings. It can't have just happened on its own. But David decided to put together some of the things he'd done successfully in other places. One of the things he'd done successfully before was the double statue trick, where you build a statue and then you build another statue, as it were, on top of it and get rid of the external statue to demonstrate the inside statue. In his, in this case, it was to be hideous atheism, which would burn away, leaving serene wisdom, which is a very Robespierrean concept, but also, perhaps I might say, Beth is going back a little bit to the reason thing. So that's one of his things. But the main thing he decided was he wanted to have a large and imposing one single, not lots of, but one single large and imposing spectacle. So he built, he decided to build a mountain on the Champ de Mars, which people could stand on, where the orchestra could play from, which would be the center point of the whole thing. These instructions, which were drawn up for Paris, were sent out to every body, everywhere. The great thing about the Festival of Reason, from this point of view, and this is where David really hit the button, was everybody did it. Obviously, they couldn't all build the great things he was building in Paris, but they all did something. If you read, as I have, through the archives, through the country, you'll find, let's take an example. Oh, yeah, uh, the guy in Nantes, who's just got rid of the worst de-Christianizers, murderers, that were around, Carrier, wrote back and said, wrote to the city fathers and said, look, it's all very well for David to do this on the Champ de Mars. We haven't got anywhere big enough. So what I'm going to do is so-and-so. And this happened all over France. Nobody said, oh, it's those Parisians again. We're not going to do it. They all said, well, we can't actually do that, but we'll do something like it. In Amiens, they built a stage in front of the cathedral. They couldn't build a, a, a mountain, but they built a stage so they could have speeches and songs from the stage. The other thing that David did was he brought in, as part of the deal, as it were, the music and the poetry. And there we come to the name of another great revolutionary, as it were, which is Chenier. You have to be a bit careful here because there were two Cheniers. There was Andrea, who was Andre, who was the brother, the elder brother, who lost his head, literally, and uh, Joseph, who was the... If David was the pageant master of the, of the, of the Republic, Marie-Joseph Chenier was the poet of the Republic. He wrote all the songs, and he got the musicians to put music to them, wonderful music to them. This, not Possibly not today, but every French child of my generation learnt how to sing a song which is called Le Chant de Départ, which was written by... Chenier for one of the festivals. You know, it's almost like the Marseillaise. Anyway, 
So a package goes out to every town, city, town, village in France to say, Oi, on this day, you will do this. And now let us pause perhaps for a moment and say, what was this day? Was the day chosen by chance? I don't think it was. It was a Sunday. It wasn't just a Sunday. It was Whit Sunday. It was a Sunday when there would normally, in the old days, have been processions and fireworks and dances and general jollification all over the country. So we've got this festival has been announced. Everybody's got to do it. And the amazing thing, or one of the amazing things, is that everybody actually did it. You talk in the book about several of the cities like Lyon and Strasbourg and Bordeaux, how they carried out the instructions from Paris. And what did you find in terms of how the festival was tailored to local needs and concerns? Well, it was tailored in every possible way. Let me give you two examples, one of a city and one of a village. In Amiens, they... No, let's do a different one. Let's do Angers. Angers is a big city, right? Angers decided, okay, we're going to have the festival. There was a problem with Angers between the local representative of the of the of the government, as it were, and the city council. The city council said, "Way, well, hey, good idea, great idea. Let's do it." They put a plan together, and they had to send it, of course, for approval to the man who was in charge, who'd been sent down from Paris. And they said to him, what do you think? And he said, absolutely nothing for a week. And then he said, I don't like it. We're going to have something completely different. What they finished up with wasn't what David had asked for, really, but they got as near to it as they could. He said, right, let's build a so-and-so. And the city council said, excuse me, we've only got a week. There is no way we can build this thing in a week. Oh, all right. Well, we'll do a platform and some trees instead. He said, we're going to hold the ceremony, not in the open air. One of the things that that Robespierre was very, very concerned about was everything should be in the open air. Uh, He said, they said, no, no, we don't don't, don't do it. We'll do it inside the... um, inside the cathedral. And everybody said, well, anyway, he's the boss, we'll do it inside the cathedral. He's one of the few people who did. Everybody else followed the rules. Amiens had it in the open air. Bordeaux had it in the open air. Bordeaux had a problem. Bordeaux had a problem because they just received a new um, man from Paris, sent down specially, saying, I am Robespierre's mouthpiece, you will now listen to me. And he said, I think we ought to have a festival celebrating the, the harvest, the great harvest we're going to have. Yeah, I, I know we've got this, this thingy with Supreme Being and so on, but we'll, we'll have the other one first. So he split it into two. But he did have the other one. In Strasbourg, the city council decided that it didn't want to do it, literally decided it didn't want to do it. The mayor said... I am going to arrange for a special festival a few days, a week before, to celebrate the fact that we beat the Fédéré and the the joy of this and that and other, and we'll have that. And a week later, he got a stinking letter from the department saying, you will do what you're told. You will have a festival. So they had another festival. They had two festivals. But they did as much. They did again. They couldn't build it in time, so they did what they could. If you go to the other extreme, 
Uh, in my book, I refer to a remarkable document, which is in the uh, archives in Lyon, and relates to a tiny little village, well, I said tiny little village, of about 200 to 250 people in the mountains above Grenoble. They had a festival, and they drew up a plan as near as they could to David's. They couldn't build a what David could build, but they had the festival and they had the girls marching and the boys waving swords exactly as David said they should. They had them doing this and doing that. And if you read that document, all the names are in it. The every, everybody, everybody who is taking part is named, even the ladies and their babies that they were carrying because one of the things David wanted everybody to do was all the ladies who were carrying infants, to hold the children up into the sky towards the sun as a representative of the supreme being and his love for France. They did that in a tiny little village. It's absolutely amazing when you read all the things that people did. A lot of people said, you're great, lovely, this is Paris, we can't do that, but we'll do something just as good. And they did. I, I use several um, examples of it. One of the one of the ones I really love is a small town. I say it's a town because it is. It's in the Dordogne. It's a little walled town. The communication in France was not great during the Revolution, and a place like that, the letters from Paris tended to be a bit late. They actually got the instructions the day before they were supposed to have the festival, and Beth, they had the festival. They didn't have anything they could do about it. They sang some songs. And according to the representative from uh, of the government, he persuaded the local cannon master. Everybody had a cannon because everyone was frightened of an invasion. They persuaded the local cannon master to let him shoot off a bag of gunpowder as a celebration. Isn't that wonderful? He only got the letter the day before. And they had a celebration. That's what's so interesting about your argument is that you say that this celebration was not seen as, as just another political imperative that was handed down from Paris to the provinces, that the people genuinely enjoyed and were enthusiastic about this day. And what kind of evidence did you find in the archives for that reaction? Well, I do quote quite a lot of it in the book. Um, uh, much of my time in preparing for this book, which is, as I said, was, was originally the thesis, was spent looking in archives for what what they did and how they did it. You say what evidence I have. Put it this way. Let, let, let's consider one. The written evidence is thin in some places. In other places, it's quite Interesting. You get, for example, in Amiens again, you've got the full deliberations of the city council noted down by the secretary. And they were discussing how best, how best to do it. They had a festival of reason the year before, which nobody cared very much about and lasted only a little while and nobody cared. They finished up the day of the Festival of the Supreme Being by having dancing in the streets, free free drinks, all sorts of things, which indicates that they were doing it because they thought it was a good idea. To be honest, one of the things that was a good idea was that people were overdue 
for a bit of jollity. Life was very hard and very tough, especially during the terror. And this was an absolute ray of sunshine. So they embraced it. But I maintain that one of the reasons why they embraced it was because it said to them, look, there is more to life than just walking through it. There is a moral function. There is a morality. We've always lived by a moral function. It was called the church. But there's a, we don't need the church. We can do our own. We, have, we accept that there is some sort of supreme being, somebody who looks after us. You can't take everything away from everybody and leave a vacuum. You have to fill the vacuum. And one of the things I think that Robespierre was trying to do was to fill the vacuum. And in many ways, he managed it. The difference between myself and the, shall we say, the classical writers on this subject is that they say it was a lot of rubbish. They only did it because Paris made them. Nobody cared. I quote Olar, the great historian, who said, nobody cared whether it was reason or the supreme being or whatever. It was just that one year we all shouted they this way and the next year we shouted the other way. I think there's evidence that this was a little more than that. I won't put it any higher than that. I know in the book I try to naturally make as strong a case as possible. I also know that I have very respected colleagues whom I respect enormously who would take issue with me. And I'm sure we have some lovely arguments about it. You also point out that many people in France had hoped that the festival of the Supreme Being marked a turning point in the revolution. And one of the reasons for this belief was was the fact that the guillotine had been dismantled for the festival in Paris, and people thought that it was gone forever, and that it meant the end of the terror and the birth of this republic of virtue. But you also point out that this hope was quickly shattered, oh, yeah. not even two days later. What happened? Well, it was a hope, and you find it in all sorts of documents. I quote some of them. Documents mostly by people who were not particularly happy with the way the revolution was going, didn't like the terror very much. Now, there was a technical reason for removing the gear team, which I also point out, which was that they marching process and had to go through it or around it, so they moved it. But from the speeches before and from Robespierre's speech, they'd all thought, hello, are we now really going to get what we want? What is this revolution about? Everybody tells us the revolution is the pathway to the republic of virtue. Maybe we're going to get the republic of virtue. Maybe if all the guillotines are taken down and they were, they're going to stay down. And as you say, This hope was totally shattered. One of the other things I mentioned in my book, which is I thought was extremely interesting, was the fact that in Paris, I have no specific evidence, uh, just general evidence, but no specific evidence outside Paris, but I have specific evidence in Paris. The ladies suddenly stopped wearing what were frankly boring red, white, and blue revolutionary garments and suddenly appeared in silks and colors and everything. All of a sudden, it looked like a real, proper, old-fashioned festival. I think that indicates something. It was hope. The hope was shattered. The festival was on the 20th of Prairie one of the blackest days of the revolution is the Loire 
du vin de Prairial, which effectively meant, if I say you're wrong, you're wrong. If I say you die, you die. If you go up before the Revolutionary Tribunal, there's not much of a chance, whatever, however many witnesses you've got, that you're going to get out of it. It was a complete downer. You're right. And it happened two days after the festival. And it completely killed the idea that, yes, maybe the Republic of Virtue is going to happen. However, I would draw your attention to the fact that I mentioned earlier, communication through the nation wasn't as fast as it is today. The time it took from news to go from A to B was quite considerable. So that a lot of the provincial cities spent about a week still believing that it might be possible until the news of the act of the 22nd of July appeared. Certainly this is true of Strasbourg. It was true of Lyon. Lyon, it took four days to get there. Bordeaux, probably five or six. So they did have a time when hope was around until, as you say, it got flattened. So this is the question I would like to end on. By most accounts, the festival had been a big success, yet Robespierre did not capitalize on the success. And as you say in your conclusion, this inaction has puzzled historians for the past 200 plus years. What is your opinion? Why didn't Robespierre take advantage of the goodwill that was engendered by that day to create a national base of support? Oh, I wish I could answer that problem, that question, Beth. If I could answer that question, my name would live forever. Um, None of us can. We absolutely do not know. We know he was ill. We know he was ill during the festival. He had very, very bad, according to his sister at least, he had very, very bad um, legs. He had ulcers all over his legs. He could hardly walk. He did uh, do everything. He was. He did two speeches and the walks and climbed the mountain and everything. He also... This is the period at which he disappeared from public view, only reappearing to effectively commit suicide on the 8th of Thermidor. And the answer is, everybody asks me that question, and my answer is, I wish I knew. Like every other historian, I do not have the sufficient basic ingredients to even start to make a pudding with it. There's nothing there. Well, his papers were destroyed right after his death. Oh, a lot of his papers were destroyed, yes. So unfortunately, we may never know the answer to that question. You're absolutely right. The answer to the question is we will never know. But isn't it great that we can still be arguing in 2018 about what happened in 1794. Exactly. That's the joy of history. Yes. And that's a great note to end on, Jonathan. So thank you so much. You've written a fascinating book and I encourage everybody to read it. And so thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you very much for having me. And I will now sit back and wait for the tide of recriminations to roll in from anybody who hears (laughs) me. Never mind. We all have our theories. And as I said, the muse of history, Beth, never forget is a lady called Cleo, and ladies are allowed to change their mind. So we've been talking with Jonathan Smith about his new book, Robespierre and the Festival of the Supreme Being, The Search for Republican Morality. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.